Hey, everybody. Uh, tonight, we're going to be going through Matthew chapter 12. Thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Dave, and uh, I am not a pastor or a priest or a minister. I am a Bible student is the best way to look at it. And this is, good grief, I think this is our 19th, might be 20, might be 18, something like that, uh, uh, one of these weekly Bible study videos. And my goal with these videos is um, to give insight and depth to the Bible for the Christian who is wanting to dig in deeper. And right now we're going through Matthew. We're doing Matthew chapter 12. Um, and you can go back and watch the other um, 18 of these or however many we've done. And I'm going to continue doing them until we finish up with Matthew. Um, oh, and there's Lexi coming and saying hello. Hi. Oh, I touched her. Now I got to pet her. Um, so before we uh, open up the Bible, why don't you uh, bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you will be here with me now as I'm giving this study and that you will be with everyone as they watch this. Open up our minds, open up our hearts, uh, and teach us something about your character and who you are, and show us how we can apply uh, the words of your Bible to our lives today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, why don't you open up your Bible, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 12. As we dig in. Now, one of the things that I've talked about in the past is that uh, it's very important to understand anytime you're reading the Bible uh, is to understand a few different things before you dig in. One, the historical cultural context. What does that mean? Big words, historical cultural context. What that means is, okay, what is going on in that time in the lives of the people there, right? So we know that this is... Um, Jesus is in Capernaum and that he is speaking to um, larger groups of people. Um, there are Pharisees involved that are there, but the core of the 12 apostles is likely very close. There are other apostles beyond that. There's quite a few followers of Jesus at this point, but we do have intermixed throughout Pharisees. And as we've run into um, in the past chapters to give some literal context of what's happening in these, these passages, um, the Pharisees have been trying to find ways to stump Jesus. They've been asking him questions. They clearly uh, have issue with him um, being this new guy on the block that has this new interpretation of uh, the Torah, uh, of the Ten Commandments, of the law, etc. So, uh, it's important for us to look at that as we dig in. So there is this, um, this tension that is rising more and more and more between the religious uh, elite groups, which you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, which all three are very different, um, but the Pharisees are the ones that we're going to be looking at today. Um, and they are a group that follows the law to the nth degree. They have, they're very, very prideful in that they follow all of the letters of the law to the extent that they actually added a bunch of additional laws. And we're going to see that today as it relates to the Sabbath. Um, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, and we'll read that in a second. But the Pharisees, to make sure that they follow that one fourth commandment, added 39 additional rules of specifically as it relates to what is work uh, that cannot be done on the Sabbath. Uh, so that's just an example. There's all sorts of rules that the Pharisees made, but the Pharisees were very proud of the fact that they were the elite 
uh, religious group and God loved them because they followed and had all of these rules. And we concluded with chapter 11 with this passage, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in the historical, cultural, and textual context, we understand that what that's actually saying here is Matthew, who wrote this uh, gospel, is talking to the new believer of Jewish heritage in a very, very... um, uh, tough time, a very tumultuous time in which there are a lot of Jews that are converting to Christianity and they're going to have a lot of questions about um, Judaism versus Christianity. And so that's who Matthew is writing to. And Jesus, his specific words here are geared towards um, a, a compare and contrast between the religious path that the Pharisees had. So when he's talking here about um, my, my, uh, yoke is is easy um, and my burden is light, uh, gentle and humble in heart, find rest for your souls. What he's talking about specifically is, is that those who have tried to follow the law um, to the extent that the Pharisees have, um, Jesus is a new way, a new covenant, which we'll, we'll come to by the end of Matthew, um, that he's saying to that believer um, or to that person that is the Jew that's questioning Christianity, come and follow me. It's so much simpler than the Pharisees make it out to be. So let's continue on. So we are in chapter 12, uh, verse 1, and I hope that 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 helps paint a picture of where we're at as Jesus is teaching to uh, uh, this group. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And I'm going to stop right there. We got really far. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Okay, the Sabbath, um, we're going to flip to that right now, um, is in Exodus 20, verse 8. So why don't you flip over there? Um, We're looking at the Ten Commandments. So, yeah, I got my marker there, and we're going to Exodus uh, 20, verse 8. This is the Ten Commandments are being uh, uh, read out here. And this is the fourth commandment. We're picking it up on uh, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreign residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Is the Sabbath day something that is just for the Jews? No, no, it's not. It is for any believer. The Sabbath is still something that we're called to uh, keep holy today. Now, in modern times, a lot of people have um, completely forgotten the Sabbath, even believers. Um, we today, the Sabbath is Sunday to the Christian, is the day that we typically celebrate as the Sabbath. And, and most Christians will go to church in this pandemic era, at least watch church. But is the day kept in the way that it was supposed to be kept uh, in its original design? I don't think so. Uh, for some people it is, for some people it's not. And that's something that I struggle with. I am very much a um, task-oriented, go-getter, project-oriented person. 
And my weekends, when I get them, uh, when I get a Saturday and Sunday, I, I do personally, I don't work on uh, Sundays. So I don't shoot weddings on Sundays. I don't shoot any project on Sundays, but occasionally things come up um, that need to be done and, and I do them. And, but I try not to work so that I always have that Sunday off. But there's always that list of projects around the house that I need to get done. And the question for myself that I need to look at is, am I honoring God in the Sabbath? Am I truly taking a day of rest? And the point of the Sabbath is for us to have rest with the Lord. It's for us to take a break, work the other six days of the week, but then on the seventh, take a break, relax. It's supposed to be a joyful and awesome day um, where we're supposed to worship God and spend time together as a family. Now, there are many different um, ways of, of doing the Sabbath. Does it have to be on Sunday? No, it does not have to be on Sunday. In fact, you could make Tuesday your Sabbath. It doesn't matter. Um, it simply is a day that you need to spend and give to God and rest. That's the important thing. Now, the Jews today, Hasidic Jews uh, today, uh, and Jews throughout the world, uh, Sabbath for them is from sunset on Friday night to sunset on Saturday night. So it's the majority of the day on Saturday, but it starts actually at sunset on Friday night. Uh, for me personally, as a photographer here in New York, B&H is the mega camera store down in New York City. It's the largest camera store in the world. And uh, when you go and visit it, you realize um, just how many Jewish people work there. Um, the Hasidic Jews that wear the yarmulke and have the, uh, um, the, that don't cut their, their sideburns so they have the long curly cues. Um, it's really cool to see, but one of the things that is really admirable of B&H is, is that from Friday night to Saturday night, they don't allow you to even buy on their online store. Uh, you are not able to even, you can shop online, because that's a website that's doing its thing, but you can't even put anything, um, you can't submit your shopping cart to be purchased. And they also, for Yom Kippur, there's all sorts of Jewish holidays that uh, B&H is closed. And it's admirable. I think it's really cool that they, they hold to that. I think that a lot of Christians should uh, um, make the Sabbath a bit more important in their lives. Wow, that was a tangent on the Sabbath, but uh, I wanted to give a little bit of an explanation. Okay, so it's the Sabbath. Uh, it's uh, between Friday night and Saturday night uh, in, in, at this time frame, and he is Jesus is walking through a grain field with his disciples. Um, continuing on, um, we are still in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. I love the, the Pharisees. They are just looking for any way they can possibly uh, have any uh, criticism, anything against Jesus and the disciples. Okay, so this is what I spoke about before. There are um, 39... Um, kinds of work that are forbidden on the Sabbath, and reaping is one of the 39 uh, types of work that is forbidden on the Sabbath. So Jesus responds. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? 
I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So let's back up and, and, and dig into this just a little bit. So there are actually three different Old Testament references that are being made here. And it's all based on the tabernacle system, the Levitical priest tabernacle system. And what I want to actually reference here is a really cool book that uh, my wife picked up um, not too long ago in the past few years. It's called Rose Book of uh, Bible Charts, Maps, and Timelines. And the thing that I love about it, it's just a neat reference. It's got all sorts of different charts and timelines in it um, of simple things um, like Paul's epistles, his letters. Um, it breaks down all sorts of different things. Um, it's a quick reference for, uh, here's a nice one, for all the different names of God. Um, for those who have kids, this would be a great thing to have, but for adults as well. Um, and it has lots of pictures, which I appreciate, which is good. But as we, we flip open to this, the one thing that I wanted to show you guys, just really quick, just to give you some context, is the tabernacle. Okay, so um, this is a picture of what the tabernacle looked like. And you had the Levites, the, the uh, tribe of Israel, the firstborn sons in every family in the tribe of Levi, uh, were responsible for running the tabernacle. That's why it's called the Levitical priesthood, the family of Levi. So what you see here um, is you have um, uh, the tents, you have the outer section, where within the outer section you have um, the, the altar where they do the burnt sacrifices. Um, then you have inside, you have uh, the menorah. Then you also have the table of showbread. And I'm just going to read this off real quick. The table of showbread was made of um, akikia wood. I don't know how to say that. It was overlaid with gold and had crown of uh, crown or frame of gold around it that was as wide as a man's hand. A ring of gold was put on each of the four legs to put the carrying poles through. The carrying poles were made of schmitten wood overlaid with gold, also made of pure gold, blah, 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 blah. So that is a description of the table of showbread. This is the bread of the presence. And that specific, um, here's a little, another description. On the table of showbread, Aaron and his sons placed 12 loaves of bread made from fine flour. These 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The table with the loaves was a continual reminder of the everlasting promises, the covenant between God and the children of Israel, and a memorial of God's provision of food. The bread was eaten by Aaron and his sons and was replaced every week on the Sabbath. So that, I hope, gives a little bit of context um, of what we're going to dig into right now. And just that quick explanation. So you have three different Bible references here. Uh, Old Testament. Haven't you read, I'm, I'm picking it up on 12.3. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Okay, so this is King David, and this story can be found in 1 Samuel 21.6, for you note takers, 1 Samuel 21.6. So David, King David, and his soldiers were hungry. They entered the house of God, that's the tabernacle, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. That's those 12 loaves of bread. They were hungry, and they ate the bread, uh, which was not lawful for them to do, and the Levitical law for that can be found in 20, uh, uh, Leviticus 24.5. Uh, and nine. That's the law of specifically talking about the tabernacle as it relates to the, the um, bread offering. Uh, Leviticus 24, 5, 9, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. 
Okay, so what Jesus is referencing here is he's using an Old Testament, excuse me, to them, it's just the Torah. Um, he's using scripture to battle against the Pharisees. The Pharisees are saying, ah, you're working on the Sabbath. You are um, reaping grain as you walk through a field and eating it, and you're not allowed to do that. So the first example that Jesus gives is said, ah, but in, in, our, in the Torah, in Leviticus, you see King David, excuse me, in, uh, in 1 Samuel, you see King David, uh, when he was hungry, went and ate the bread when he wasn't supposed to. But yet there's no uh, repercussions for that. Uh, the Bible doesn't, in, in 1 Samuel, you do not see um, any rebuke of King David for doing that. But he clearly was breaking a law, but there's no uh, rebuke for him doing that. Then he continues, Or haven't you read in the law that the priest on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath? That's Numbers 28 uh, verse 9, Numbers 28 verse 9. Uh, is talking about specifically what the Levitical priests are supposed to do on the Sabbath. And they are specifically breaking the specific rules that they had for what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. But because they were Levitical priests in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was more important. And so that needed to be done. The work that they needed to, do, to be done was allowed to be done because the temple was so important. Let's continue on. Uh, or haven't you read in the law that the priests and the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying that the reason why those temple priests were allowed to do that is because the temple was more important. And Jesus is saying something is more important right here, right now than the temple. So let me continue on. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that's a reference to Hosanna, uh, Hosea, excuse me, Hosea 6.6. 6. Um, and you know what, let's just flip there. So uh, Hosea 6.6, 6. put my marker in. So we're flipping over. Uh, as For those who've been following week by week, we did touch on this same passage. Uh, Jesus referenced it earlier in Matthew. Um, but I'm going to actually pick it up on Hosea 6.4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judea? He's talking about Israel. Those are two tribes of, of Israel. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So the important thing that, that Jesus is saying in referencing this, and the whole point of this, is he's actually calling into question how the Pharisees interpret the law altogether. He's not even battling against the Sabbath. He's talking about the Pharisees' interpretation of the law all together. So I want to actually pick up and reference um, just real quick. Come on. There we go. Um, yep, we did that. And seriously? Okay, so we're going to pick up, and I just want to read a little bit of something on this. Um, okay, so this is a commentary um, specifically as it relates to this passage dealing with the Sabbath. The disciples were not farmers trying to do some illicit work, but were 
itinerant preachers casually picking some heads of grain. Indeed, it is not at all obvious that any commandment of Scripture was actually being broken. It seems then that Jesus used the David incident not merely to question the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath, uh, for the David incident was not directly relevant. Rather, he was questioning their approach to the law itself. So Jesus is questioning uh, the Pharisees' overall interpretation of the law. And that's an important thing to note. So let's continue on. At, uh, they're still on the Sabbath. It's still, um, they're going into the synagogue. Uh, so we're on uh, Matthew 12, 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So now the Pharisees are actually looking to trap Jesus. They see a guy with a withered hand, and they want to trap him. So they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. From this, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. Because of his interpretation of the fourth commandment of the Sabbath? No, it's because Jesus is claiming to be God. And the Pharisees see that. They know that that's what he's claiming. Because what he says here is that for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then he, again, when he, when he heals the, the uh, man with the withered hand, he is claiming to be above um, the law. He's claiming to be God, and that is the specific reason why the Jews sought out to uh, crucify him. And when you look, we're going to get to this, um, they don't accuse him. When, when, they, when the Sanhedrin accuses Jesus um, on the, uh, the night that he is uh, taken into captivity, um, blaspheming is what he, blasphemy is what he's accused of. He's accused of... Um, calling himself God, equal with God. They do not reference the fact that uh, he disagrees with them on the definition of what work is on the Sabbath, but because he claims to be God. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and uh, he wrote um, not only the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, but he also wrote some uh, outstanding Christian literature. Um, several of my favorite books, um, Screwtape Letters is a really interesting read where what that one is, it takes the perspective of the enemy, the enemy's camp, and it's a dialogue, these letters between two different demons, Wormwood and Screwtape, uh, are a lesser demon and a, um, higher level demon talking about, um, uh, trying to convert a person to their perspective. And it's a very fast, very entertaining read. Another read that is really good is called Mere Christianity. Um, and I got a copy of it here, but I want to read um, just a quick excerpt from that. Um, so C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Think about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, 
but I don't expect, accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he will be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So this is that argument of the liar lunatic Lord. And that argument simply is, as C.S. Lewis painted it, is, is that Jesus is one of three things. He is either a liar, a horrible, horrible moral person for lying to the extent that he did if he was a liar, uh, that, that caused millions of people who have now been martyred in faith to him, which is not the case at all. That's one of the arguments, though, and, and, and it's just as implausible as the next one, which is the lunatic. Is, is that if he wasn't God, then he was insane because he was claiming to be God and the things that he was saying were insane or he's Lord. But the one that isn't an option in those three is he's a good moral teacher. There are a lot of skeptics who will say that um, Jesus did exist and they have to say that because it's pretty darn provable that he existed from secular perspectives and historical writings of the, that, that Jesus as a man existed and was crucified uh, on a cross. That is provable as much as anything can be proven. So what some skeptics will say then, because you can't disprove his existence, is, well, he was a good moral teacher. And what C.S. Lewis is saying, no, he has left no room for that. Because if you read the Bible, it's very obvious what he was claiming. And the, the reason why I bring all of this up is, is that right at the end of uh, uh, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Did they want to kill him because he disagreed with them on the uh, fourth commandment of the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath or doing work on the Sabbath? No, they wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be God. And that ultimately is the reason why he was crucified is because he claimed to be God. That's why the Pharisees wanted so badly and eventually did kill him. So if he was this good moral teacher and that was it, then the Pharisees would have had no problem with him. They would have seen him uh, as being even lesser than John the Baptist, some crazy guy out in, in the wilderness that's just uh, being a good teacher. But Jesus never claimed that. Jesus was not just a good teacher. He's God in the flesh. And the Pharisees understood what he was claiming, and that's why they killed him. So I wanted to just point that out here, that that whole argument of him being a good teacher has no ground whatsoever to stand on. Really, honestly, he has to be one of those three, and that's the only perspectives you can have is liar, lunatic, or lord. Continuing on, we are on uh, uh, verse 15. Aware of this, the fact that they want to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place, a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. 
He was warned, he warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant who I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. That's Isaiah 42.1 that um, Matthew is, is quoting here. And again, Matthew is writing um, in a time of the early church, specifically to Jews. So he is throughout his uh, uh, book here, Matthew is quoting uh, Old Testament, or in his perspective, just scripture, that was all prophetic of Jesus. So this is a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled that was written uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. And specifically, all these do uh, correlate to Jesus. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Now, let me just explain that real quick. That doesn't mean Jesus had a public ministry. People could go and listen to him speak. But what this is talking about is the idea of protesting. He wasn't with a bullhorn and a megahorn with a big sign screaming from the top of his lungs in the streets. That's not, that's not Jesus. So let's continue on. Um, verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But the Pharisees heard this. They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now this little chunk on verse 22 here, uh, this one incident of uh, him healing a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute uh, and casting out that demon is going to be the grounds for all of the rest of Matthew 12. It all comes back to this one incident of Jesus healing uh, a, a man who was possessed by a demon. So uh, he's there, he heals this man, and the crowd says, oh my gosh, could this actually be the Messiah? And that's what they mean when they say the son of David, because one of the prophecies of the Messiah is that he would be in the lineage of King David. He'd be descendant of King David. So they're saying, is he the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said it is only by Beelzebub. So what they're claiming is, is that he's not the Messiah. He himself is possessed by a demon, and because his demon is the prince of demons, he's able to cast out other demons. So let's see what Jesus says. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can the kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. So what is he saying here? He is saying that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And just as a quick tangent here, we'll come back, but this is a fun little tangent to take. Who else said that? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln, it, you can Google the whole speech, um, but it is um, 
the House Divided Speech, in which Abraham Lincoln pulled specifically from Scripture. Abraham Lincoln was a Christian, and he said um, that a house divided cannot stand. That speech that he gave, he's talking about the, the, the pending division that would ultimately become the Civil War. This was given, this speech was given by Abraham Lincoln um, on June 16, 1858, when he was appointed as the senator from Illinois by the Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party of Illinois nominated him as the senator for Illinois. This is before he was president. And it would be, uh, it's 1861, so three years later is when the Civil War actually started. And Lincoln said, our house is divided, and a, a house divided cannot stand. One of the two parties will win. And right now, our nation is incredibly divided. So for context, for those people who are listening to this at a later date, other than uh, on November 18th, uh, when this is first airing. Um, right now, um, President uh, Trump has not conceded um, the uh, election for the next presidency. Um, he is still claiming that uh, there was voter fraud and that he is the, that he actually won. And then you have um, Biden, who is claiming that he won um, enough, um, sorry, um, I didn't charge my iPad last night, and so I gotta plug it in, uh, to make sure it doesn't die, because it has all my notes, um, in here, although I could probably get by at this point without, without the notes. So, uh, Biden is claiming victory as well. Both sides are claiming victory, and we have an incredibly divided country right now. Eschatology. Eschatology is a big fancy academic word that is the study of the end times. And when you do uh, and study eschatology, the end times, one of the things that's blatantly apparent, apparent, especially to Americans, is the absence of America in the end times eschatology. So why is that? There's two possible reasons why, in my mind, that the United States is not mentioned, the United States is not mentioned in the end times. Um, China is in there, Russia's in there, Iran is in there, um, Israel is obviously very much in there, Turkey's in there, and the small countries that are surrounding Israel, they're all mentioned. Thousands and thousands of years ago, they were all written about uh, how the end times would fold out. Even Great Britain, as the lion, is mentioned, but the United States is not mentioned. So there's two possible reasons why I think that is. And one of them is because of the rapture of the church. This is the one I'm hoping for. So the rapture of the church is 1 Thessalonians, I think it's 4.17. Let me see my notes. Yep, I got it right. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. This is the specific scripture that talks about the rapture. After that, uh, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. This is talking about, and I've mentioned it before, the rapture of the church is God pulling out the righteous before he brings down wrath and judgment on the earth, which is the tribulation. There is pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, not going to get into all of that, but 
suffices to say, I am very hopeful that if the tribulation happens before the tribulation, which I believe it will, if the rapture happens before the tribulation, I believe the United States will be crippled beyond repair. If every believer just suddenly vanishes in this worldwide event, it is going to be an event that will unify the world, unify religions, unify uh, uh, governments that, that when you see and look at prophecy, uh, it fits. It fits very, very well. So my hope, my hope that the reason why the United States is not mentioned in the end times is because the rapture of the church has already happened and there's so many believers in this nation that this nation is just just falls apart and is not a world leader anymore and not a world player um, in the end times, which we are living in today. The rapture of the church could happen today. There is nothing in the prophetic timeline uh, that has to happen before that. The other uh, is we could start with the same fate that Rome did, and that is uh, moral decay and, and falling apart from within and, and potentially even civil war. There are people who believe that we are on the cusp of civil war. I really don't believe that myself personally, um, but that is the other option is either way, the United States is not a world player in the economy in uh, the, the tribulation, in the, that seven-year period of time. Wow, that was a long tangent, but it all came down from Lincoln's address, the house divided cannot stand. Our house currently government-wise is incredibly divided. And my hope and my prayer is, is that um, we can either be unified as a nation or the rapture of the church happens. One of those two things I would really love to happen in the very, very immediate future. Continuing on, um, wow, where the heck am I? Um, okay, so... Yes. So the Pharisees are claiming that Jesus is casting out demons because he is a demon. And Jesus is saying that a house divided cannot stand, that Satan can't, can't cast out Satan. Um, so, and he says here, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? Because that is something that, that does happen is, is that you do see, uh, and they did see, um, demons being cast out by other people. It's not just Jesus that was casting out demons. Um, and so that's what he's saying here is, is that um, by whom do your people drive them out? When your people, the, uh, the Jews, cast out demons, who are they casting out by, if not by God? But if it is by the Holy Spirit, which is what he's claiming it to be, of God, then I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Kingdom of God is at hand. Or again, and he's coming back, he's, he's making um, another way of looking at this, is how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. This is an analogy. The strong man here is the demon and the house is the person's soul. So what Jesus is saying is, is that how can I come and, and free the house of the demon unless I first bind up the demon? You can't do one without doing the other first. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against 
the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this should cause any Christian to pause because, hi Lexi, hi Lexi, the reason why this should cause any Christian to pause is that we know through Jesus all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Through Jesus, we have um, atonement of sin. So what Jesus is saying here is that there is an impartable sin. There is a sin that is unforgivable. And in the context here, we can discover what that is. Now keep in mind, all of this is dealing with this same conversation that is, being hap that is, that, that is happening about the demon-possessed man that Jesus cast the demon out from. Okay, so what Jesus is claiming is, is that he is casting out the demon through the Holy Spirit. And what the Pharisees are claiming is, is that it's by Satan that he's casting out the demon. So uh, what I want to do is I want to actually reference um, our nice commentary here. Big, thick commentary. Uh, and let's see what they say. The first sin is rejection of the truth of the gospel. That's rejecting Jesus Christ. But there may be repentance and forgiveness for that, meaning that you can spend your whole entire life uh, not believing in Jesus or even uh, speaking against Jesus as an atheist or whatever, um, but you can always repent and you can always be forgiven for that. But there may be repentance and forgiveness for that, which is what I just said. Whereas the second sin is rejection of the same truth and full awareness that this is exactly what one is doing thoughtfully willfully, self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit, even though there can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcism, exorcisms than that. It thus becomes a declaration that one is against God. So what uh, these guys are claiming is, is that um, the Pharisees are guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because... They're claiming that the work uh, that the Holy Spirit did, which can only be done by the Holy Spirit, is what, what's being claimed here, is, is the act of casting out a demon. Because as Jesus said, um, Satan can't cast out Satan. The Pharisees are claiming that it's by the devil. And that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Another word for blasphemy is uh, extreme word against. So it's an extreme word against. So uh, this is where you do have um, some question about what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This specific example is that, that, that I've already gone over is this idea that a work that was done by the Holy Spirit, um, uh, you are claiming that the devil did that work. You are giving credit for the work being done by the Holy Spirit and you're discrediting. You have a strong word against the Holy Spirit. Some would also make the claim that the um, unforgivable sin is knowingly, willingly knowing the full story of who Jesus is, who, who the Messiah is, who Christ is, and willingly going against that and living a lifestyle that is 100% against that. And this is the part where I don't know because Jesus makes it very clear that uh, uh, he... 
he'll forgive you of your sins if you believe in him. So I don't know personally, I haven't studied well enough to know where we draw that line. Um, but the exact thing that Jesus is referencing here of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is specifically when the Holy Spirit does something that only the Holy Spirit can do and the only explanation is the Holy Spirit and you willingly knowing that it is the Holy Spirit don't give credit to the Holy Spirit, but you say that it was caused by something else. That is the specific reference here uh, in text. I do believe that if you repent, no matter how harsh your sins are, no matter how bad of a life you've lived, um, you can always turn to Jesus. You can always repent. If nothing else, the one thing that is very, very clear to me from all the studying that I've ever done is all that God cares about is your heart. What is in your heart? Where is your heart at? That's the important thing. Wow, okay, so um, we're gonna continue on. Um, anyone who speaks a word, I'm at verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. This is the same idea of, uh, we mentioned that, uh, I think it's Matthew 7, uh, 15, 16, somewhere in there is, is the passage where um, Jesus talks about the fact that you'll recognize a believer based on their fruit. Same idea here. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings up evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So, context of the day first. Um, what is Matthew uh, saying here? Specifically Jesus, Matthew writing it down, but what are Jesus' words here? Mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Jesus is teaching and giving these lessons and healing people and doing all these miraculous things, and the religious elite, the Pharisees, are trying to stump him, trying to find ways to prove him false, and trying to find harsh things that they can prove him guilty of blasphemy and thus um, crucify him, kill him. Out of the abundance of their heart, they're speaking. So the things that they're speaking are evil, and this shows that that's where their hearts are as well. Now, context for today. Your words have way more impact than you realize on two levels. One, I don't think people realize how people interpret the words that you say and that you do have a very strong impact with the words that you say to others. But also, those words that you say reflect back hugely what's in your heart. So, my question to you today, do you lift people up or do you tear them down? In general, your interactions with people, do they leave that interaction feeling warmer or feeling colder? When you enter a room, do you think people are worried about what you're going to say next? That you're a gossip or that, that, that all you're going to do is slander somebody else and they fear that when you leave the room and start talking to somebody else, you're going to be slandering them? Or do your words lift other people up? That's a good question. Something to think about, something to pray about.
Continuing on, we're on verse, uh, uh, oh, I got to hit on this one. Uh, verse 37, let me read it again. By your words, you'll be acquitted, and by your words, you'll be condemned. There's two judgments that everyone is facing, one or the other. One is the great white throne judgment, and the other one is the Bema seat judgment. And I've spoken about both of those before. The great white throne judgment, you can find that in Revelation. I think it might be Revelation 20. I don't remember exactly where, but just do a Google search for the great white throne judgment and it's in Revelation. And it talks about how everyone whose name is not written in the book of life uh, is going to be judged and your good deeds and your bad deeds are going to be weighed. And if your good deeds don't outweigh your bad deeds, um, then you get to spend eternity with um, in the absence of God, basically, in hell. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. The Bema Seat Judgment um, is the judgment that all believers go through where that's actually all that it's looking at is what good deeds did you do and those somehow, and I don't know how exactly this works or what it means, the good deeds that we do here on earth will be uh, equated with reward in some level in heaven. I'm just going to be excited to get there, to be honest. I'm just going to be excited to get there. So, that's what he's talking about here is, is that your words, your actions are going to be judged and you're either going to be condemned or acquitted based on the things that you do. And to make it clear, in God's economy, just on that idea of your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds, because a lot of people do believe that, that oh, I'll get into heaven. I mean, I'm generally a good person. In God's economy, a bad thought, a, a thought of, of hatred in your mind against someone else's equivalent of murder and a lustful thought by man or woman for anybody is the equivalent of adultery. So in that economy, no one is good enough. I just want to make, make that clear. It's only by Christ's forgiveness of our sins is any of us washed free from that. And I'm so grateful for the book of life and the fact that my name is written in it. And if your name isn't in it, why not? Honestly, why not? Um, okay, uh, we've got a lot still to cover here. Um, so I'm going to continue on verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So teacher, rabbi, um, is a nice positive term. So are they being nice in what they say here? Are they being respectful in what they say here? Well, let's look and see how Jesus responds. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Okay, so now we know how Jesus responded that... Um, the teacher we want to sign from you was not in a, a positive way. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was uh, three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus already said something greater than the temple is here. Now something greater than Jonah is here. So what does this all mean? Uh, a wicked and adulterous generation. Adulterous in the idea that um, the analogy of marriage. The Jews are called the wife of God. Believers are considered the bride of Christ. It's an important thing uh, all throughout the scriptures. You see this. Uh, we've mentioned it before. But on that note of adultery, that uh, the wicked and adulterous generation, adultery is talking about the fact that um, we're cheating on God or cheating on Christ. 
um, by worshiping other gods. Now, we today don't worship Moloch or, uh, you know, Diana or what, what have you, um, but we do the same things that those generations did in the past that actually worshiped those. Diana was a fertility god, and they would have um, uh, altars to Diana that would have sex and, and basically, you know, pornography in a strip club, more or less. Um, and we have that today. We just don't call it worshiping Diana. It's worshiping pornography, um, but it's being free to do what you want to do. It's in the same, and in the same way. And that's what the adulterous generation, that's the idea. And that's a term that's used throughout the Bible. So um, what is the example of Jonah? So Jonah, um, which that's a, a, a whole other book that you can read, which is great, good story. Um, He's three days, three nights in a huge fish, not a whale, he's in a huge fish, and then he comes out, he gets barfed up on the shore, uh, and I'm not going to get into the story of, of him trying to avoid the will of God and the fish capturing him and sending him, that, that's a whole other tangent, um, but he goes and he was tasked to go to the people of Nineveh and call for them to repent, and they did, and they did repent. And that's what Jesus is saying. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they had Jonah and they repented and this generation has Christ and they are not repenting. And that's, that's what he's saying here. Um, and now something greater than Jonah is here. That's Christ. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So what is Jesus talking about here? The queen of the south is the queen of Sheba, um, which Sheba is uh, modern day Yemen. So the queen of Sheba, the story you can find it in 1 Kings 10.1, you can read this whole story about how the queen of Sheba heard about how amazingly wise was Solomon. Solomon the wise. And so she, secular, not a Jew, came to sit and listen and just to hear from Solomon, to listen to what he had to say and to, to learn from his wisdom. And Jesus is saying again, someone is greater than Solomon is here now. He's talking about himself. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than Jonah. He's greater than um, Solomon. And all of these people in the past worshiped those things, or not worshiped those things, but listened to and respected those things. And this wicked generation is not listening to him. When an impure spirit... Now we're coming back to the same thing that we talked about uh, on verse 22. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So we're coming back to the demon possession here. And what Jesus is saying is, is that if I cast out this demon and this man who remains does not repent and fill that vacancy with God, with the Holy Spirit, then it's just going to get worse. You're just going to fall back uh, worse than you were before. You can use the same analogy for an alcoholic, a person who... who, who uh, flushes all the alcohol, goes clean, and then relapses. And when they relapse, it's far worse than it was the first time because they never actually repented. It's in the same idea uh, in, in talking about accepting Christ. Is, is that if, if you 
go to church and you want to clean up your life and you do that. You clean up your life, but you never actually have true repentance. You can clean up your life all you want, but if you, that vacancy, every single one of us has a God-sized hole in our heart, in our soul, that only God can fill. And we can try as hard as we possibly can to fill it with other things. And we do. This generation today does. Uh, money is one of the big things. Um, sex, lust, another huge thing. And then just entertainment in, in looking at uh, uh, um, all the stuff that you can watch between Netflix and Amazon and Apple TV, all of that. We try to find fulfillment and worth in every single place except for God. And what this, in speaking to us today, is saying is that if you don't fill that God-sized hole with God, you're going to be empty, but other things will fill it up that do not satisfy, that do not fulfill the hunger that is there in your heart, in your soul. Only God can do that through Jesus. Okay. Tangent, sorry. Okay, we're wrapping up now. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what is Jesus talking about? We spoke about this actually last week um, and uh, should have touched on it the, the week before in talking about the fact that we are members of a heavenly family. And what Jesus is saying is, is that anyone who believes in God and accepts Christ is part of this family. He specifically says, uh, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now his actual mom, Mary, and his half-brothers, uh, Mary and Joseph's uh, sons, are outside. They are physically outside. And what Jesus is saying here is not that, um, he, he's not, it's not as, it, it, in my mind, it's not as harsh as saying, I disown them, they are not my mother and my brothers, these people are my mother and brothers from now on. What he's saying is that I'm in the middle of teaching, and these, this is my more immediate family. My mom and my brothers are important, yes, but right now I'm speaking God's truth. And these right now are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ didn't obviously say that, but that's the idea of it, is, is that we are united um, through Christ as a massive, massive family. And that's the thing that's really cool, is, is that throughout the entire world, um, in, in every language, there are believers, and we are all part of that same family. So that wraps, wraps up uh, chapter 12. Why don't you bow your heads? Oh, Lord, th thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I, I pray that this teaching can marinate with people, um, that, that, that they can think on it and study it themselves. You had very harsh words for the Pharisees, and Lord, I pray that we can learn uh, from the lessons that you teach in the conversations that, that Jesus specifically had with the Pharisees and that we today can make sure that we are not following similar paths uh, to the Pharisees uh, of, of Jesus' day. Lord, I pray that, that you will show each of us what's in our hearts and convict us if our words are words that don't 
bring warmth and comfort and, and build people up, but that they are words that tear people down. Convict us, Lord. Convict me of that. Convict the person who's listening to this, if that is the case. Um, forgive us of that and, and guide us uh, and change our hearts so that out of the abundance of a uh, heart filled with you, we can speak warmth and truth and build people up. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful for, for this time that we have together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I realize this one was a bit long, but there was a lot of meat to get through in covering all of chapter 12. Uh, I contemplated dividing it into two, but because it was all one big chunk of a conversation that hit a lot of different things in this discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus about uh, the law and the demon possession, etc., I wanted to keep it together as one. So thank you for, for bearing with me. Uh, in a longer study, and uh, have a phenomenal week. I'll see you next week in which we will dig into chapter 13.